Welcome to Journal Spotting. Trying to read up on latent TB, but the thought of wading through complicated literature about a dormant bug makes you wish you were, well, dormant. Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back, you lovely listeners. Today we managed to source and interview the mystical TV guru, Dr. Ronan Breen. We found him down a long corridor, through a cupboard door, into a tiny office, round the corner, and through yet another secret entrance into his office. Adorned by numerous photos, articles, and newspaper clippings all over the walls, and with sweeping vistas over the <coughs> car park, we thought this would be the perfect spot to interview. Of course, as soon as we started, sirens, the occasional screams, and roadworks also did. I've done my best with a bit of audacity magic to correct this, but apologies if the sound quality isn't quite up to our usual standards. Don't worry, it's worth it. Dr. Breen will be doing a small series of podcasts with us covering, in the first instance, latent TB and everything you need to know as a general medic. At a later date, we might cover the do's and don'ts of active TB, and then finally, the prevalent but little understood non-tuberculous mycobacterium. Quick facts about Dr. Ronan Breen. As well as being the TB guru of South London, he has 81 publications to his name, the majority on mycobacterium, and he has run the London Marathon multiple times. Just so you know, at his best he came 104th with a fairly outstanding time of 2 hours and 36 minutes. However, all this pales into insignificance compared to his greatest achievement yet. No, no listeners, it's not being on journal spotters. It's actually starting up Cake Thursdays in the St Thomas's Chess Clinic. Oh no, <laughs> congratulations. Thank you very much, would, Barney. Would you describe that as your best achievement? I think that was certainly Cake the most hard-fought yeah. uh, achievement. <laughs> and but, but like all things in life, it's about sustaining it. Directly observe therapy for cake as well. Yeah, so. it, it really is. Ronan, every Thursday he finds me like, Barney, it's Cake Thursday. And then usually I'm not that much of a cake man generally. I'm like, oh, uh, Barney, it's Cake Thursday. <laughs> okay, I'll be there in a minute. It's, it's a mixture of kind of bullying. And, um, I, I lie to it, the general, yeah, paternalistic sense of looking after the department. Okay. Keep our sugar levels up. Okay, listen, I, I am Dr. Barnaby Hirons. And whilst I consider myself a fairly active person, I'm feeling a little bit inferior in the running department right now. However, I'm looking forward to catching up on the latest in latent TB land. And I'm Dr. Jonathan Hudson, and I'm going to be listening to today's podcast very carefully after having spent two years working in a South African hospital. I'm going to be looking for some uh, future management tips for myself, maybe. <laughs> I think I'll be asking you for advice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is a small room. Uh, Ronan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you. So the audience can get to know you a little bit. I don't know, maybe you could tell us about the best piece of advice that you've received in your sort of doctoring career and um, the one which you would like to, I don't know, perhaps share with us. Yeah, I, do you know, when I think of the best advice, it usually comes from my um, mentor, teacher, friend, Mark Lippmann, who's mm-hmm. probably taught me most of what I need to know about TB. One of Mark's favourite phrases was, to ask the question, why do robbers rob banks? The answer to which is because that's where the money is. Yeah. And it stood with me. Being focused in, in medicine, let alone in life, is such a skill. Okay. Uh, and that's always stayed with me. And that's what I like to pass on to people. 
Very nice. Stay focused. All right. Thank you, Roland. Yeah, that's great. Excellent. So I think we should um, start with the podcast and um, start getting into so latent TV. And I suppose we could start, uh, Ronan, if you don't mind, by just explaining to us what latent TV actually means, just if we start with some simple sort of definitions. Do you know, I'm glad you've asked me to talk about the most difficult to understand area of TV first. I was thinking not to book my background that active TV will be a breezer. Um, and I think that's one of the problems when understanding latent TB is how to define it. And I would, in my mind, latent TB is you've got a positive interferon gamma release assay or a skin test, you've got a normal chest x-ray and you're completely well and that's what I would call latent TB. Okay, great. The more complicated bit, and I think it's something I've learned a lot of in the, in, with time, is to recognise the fact that then there's a group which you might call subclinical TB and subclinical TB you could probably subdivide into those people who actually seem very well but when you look on a deeper level predominantly you get samples from them say sputum and juice sputum BAL actually they're completely well and their imaging might look normal but you can culture TB okay yeah and then there's a group of people who've probably had TB in the past what you might call it inactive so those people are completely well, and you can't culture anything, but they have abnormal chest x-ray. Yeah. And they are, they're a group that very ignorantly in the old days, I'd often say, oh, you've had TB, don't worry about yeah. it, be on your way, you're, you know, you're immune. And that's far yeah. from it. Right, that's, yeah. that's changed, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to include that inactive TB with scarring, previously sort of self-healed TB, lump that in with latent TB because that's an important group. Yeah. And and is it is it fair to say that latent TB means that you are by definition asymptomatic or not necessarily? I, I think it means you're asymptomatic, yeah. Okay. Great. And uh, do we do we have a, a good idea about what the prevalence of latent TB is, maybe in the UK or even in the world? Do we do we actually know? Studies suggest that, that a figure of around a third of the population of the world is latently infected with TB. Okay. Um, I think the, the, the question of that in the UK is rather is much more difficult to answer. It will depend very much where you are in mm. the UK. I mean, sitting in South London, we're obviously a place with a lot of immigration. And so we have a lot of people constantly moving back and forth in the country from areas with high incidence of TB. Yeah. We also have a older population who would have been exposed to TB a lot when they were young, and they will also be latently infected. Sure. What, what would be helpful to come on to now is trying to decide who we should test for latent TB and, and how you go about making that decision. Yeah, so, so that's you've already come on to one of the areas that's extremely contentious, extremely difficult to work out, and I think continues to evolve. And... Even in my 20 years, really, a little bit more of thinking about TB, our approach in the UK has changed. So when I was um, training, we never really talked very much about latent TB. We really focused just on active cases, and we assumed if we treated the active cases well, we'd get on top of this problem mm. and everything would be okay. Yeah. But rates carried on going up. Um, and so it prompted that recognition that there, there is a third of the world's population who potentially can develop tuberculosis. Yeah. 
So the only way ultimately to eliminate disease is to think about how to get into that reservoir of patients and, and treat those. And the WHO and the CDC and NICE now have taken that on and uh, are, have recommended progressively more and more and more testing yeah. um, with the ultimate aim of trying to eliminate tuberculosis. I mean, WHO's the aim is for elimination in 2050, yeah. and their goal is to do that by testing and then treating latent TB, and yeah. that's a very ambitious aim. Yeah, sure, that sounds extremely ambitious in the next 30 years to, for sure, say in our population, say for the medics we see, who, who should they be thinking about testing for latent TB? And... I think if you were to test everyone, you would find an awful lot of tests, mm. but you'd find if the estimate's right that, say, your lifetime risk with a tuberculosis-positive mm. skin test is 5 to 10%, plus a lifetime, by definition, then 90 95%, you're not going to mm. get active disease. So the number you need to treat to prevent a case of TB is, is very high. Yeah. So we come on to one of the important things of latent TB, which is actually not clinical efficacy, efficacy but cost-effectiveness. Um, another area where... Yeah. I, I don't fully understand the data because it seems to go off into a minefield of, of qualies. <laughs> but cost effectiveness is obviously very important because you can yeah. you could treat everyone, but it's going to bankrupt your system. So how do we identify those people who are most at risk? Well, in our developed world setting, um, one thing, the first thing it probably is to focus on is just people who've been exposed mm. to an infectious case of tuberculosis recently. Yeah. So that's always been very well established. You have active disease and you get those people and you ask them who have they been in prolonged contact with. And this rough figure that we probably all learn of eight hours contact, um, which usually means household members, work colleagues, the children's schools, um, and getting in and doing your contact tracing, whether that's with a skin test or whether that's with a blood test, interferon gamma release assay, Doing that, identifying those people who are positive, mm. and then offering those people chemoprophylaxis. So that's the basis of of of, of, of um, contact tracing and basis of trying to identify mm, yeah. people with latent TB that's going to go on and develop active disease with a with a reasonable likelihood. Okay, let me just interject. How quickly do these tests become positive after an exposure to TB? Yeah, it's a good question because, of course, you're developing an a, 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 a immune response and particularly a T-cell immune response, and it probably takes reliably six weeks. Okay. Just, just as an aside to the household context, the, the, the most important group to make sure you screen properly are children. I think that's worth yeah. saying to start. And the, the worst time to get exposed to TB is as a child probably somewhere between 18 months and five years. Okay. This concept of maternal immunity is there, but will wane. And you don't really have a good cell-mediated immune response till around the time you go to school. So that's one group you definitely don't want to miss. And that's a group where if you have a net, you good exposure history, but if you, have a, if you have a negative initial skin test, you still start them on isoniazid pending another, or isoniazid okay. and pending another test because mm. you really don't want to miss that. Perfect. Okay. And so that brings in the importance of your underlying immune response. Mm. Yeah. So immunosuppressing conditions, obviously HIV, mm-hmm. incredibly important. Um, 
anti-TNF therapy and, and various biologics can in, interfere with um, TB immune protection. So we're, I think we're all increasingly comfortable with the idea that before you start on anti-TNF therapy, you're going to get screened, and yeah. if you're screened positive, you're going to be you're going to be treated. Um, renal failure. Dialysis is a, is a is a group that's that has an increased risk of uh, okay. TB, almost regardless mm. of whether they're immunosuppressed in any other way. Transplant recipients. The list sort of yeah. goes on a little mm. bit. Okay. And what what about healthcare staff? Should they all be yeah. tested or in in a healthcare setting in a developed world, you should not be getting exposed to TB. Yeah. Now the problem is not is is never. The people you know have TB, obviously, it's the people you don't know yeah, have TB. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it, in the healthcare setting, although one hopes you'll ne- you won't get it, you might be unlucky. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think you do have to think about individual staff and where they are and, you know, individual risk related mm. to that. Probably the most important thing is to test people when they come into the service. So medical yeah. students now will get tested. New members of staff will get tested and identify those people who are positive and then test people if they have been exposed, which sadly people are exposed. Mm, yeah. So let's um, let's move on to a bit of a case, if that's okay. And it touches on what, one of the you know, sort of cases you were talking about. So let's imagine a, a 27-year-old Caucasian um, and they're about to start infliximab for severe inflammatory bowel disease. She's otherwise healthy and has had no known exposure to tuberculosis from her history. As a general rule, she's not very keen on medications, as a lot of 27s might be. Maybe, you know, she's into her paleo diet and not really taking those sorts of things. However, she's accepted that Fixmab is what she needs. We've talked a little bit about what tests are available, but what would you suggest for her and, and why? So the first thing is to say, uh, in, in my view, race is... is completely unimportant in this setting um how nice you are where you came from yeah what you do is completely yeah. unimportant because so many people are exposed to tuberculosis without realizing although it's not huge numbers when you get it down to the sort of individual patient level you can't look at someone and say oh you're at risk and you're not at risk especially yeah. with anti mm, sure and these are the patients you know uk born caucasian often with a nice job and sounds very nice. Those are the people that people <laughs> consciously or subconsciously ignore TB and then they start their anti-TNF and then they get really bad disease. Yeah. Partly yeah. because yeah. when they get the really bad disease, people still say, oh no, but you're a nice Caucasian, you can't possibly have TB. So the disasters mm. usually happen in this population. Okay, yeah, yeah. And the initial screening we used to do before anti-TNF um, was very much um, profile-based. Mm. Yeah. And we didn't see huge numbers of cases, but we saw cases, and as I say, they were often very late, they did very, very badly. So this person needs to be tested, and I would take a universal testing approach to starting, before starting a drug like infliximab. When you come onto the individual testing um, strategy, it's actually quite difficult to work out what's the best between Mm -hmm. skin test and the interferon gamma release assays, whether that's a T-spot or a quantiferon. And which test done is partly will be based upon what you have locally available, um, partly based on cost and laboratory infrastructure. I think the consensus would be in that sort of patient where they may already be on immunosuppressive drugs, that you'd probably go for the test which seems to work best 
in all comers, including those who are immunosuppressed. And the evidence seems to suggest that T-spot TB assay, yeah. um, which is an L-spot assay, is a little bit more sensitive than the other tests. Okay. So it probably has an advantage in, in that way. And so they're a little bit sense, more sensitive in the immunosuppressed population or in any yes, population? Yes, in, in the immunosuppressed okay. population. Mm. The skin test is a, is a great test. It's been around for well over 100 years. It has some limitations in terms of sensitivity. Yeah. So um, one of the reasons, Jonathan, you may have a negative skin test, of course, mm. maybe you're an immunosuppressed and you don't realise that, but we yeah. can discuss that outside <laughs> this podcast. Separate, separate conversation. Um, it's probably because you've been doing so many nights and you're you know, just a bit tired. Yeah. Um, we can make a new diagnosis every, every podcast every podcast room and we can... Uh, <laughs> follow me through my TB disease. That's yeah. it. But I'm, I'm here to treat um, and support. Um, the, the skin test as well is, is confounded by the BCG. So, yeah. mm. uh, you know, and that's, that is one of the limitations of the test undoubtedly. So I think an interferon gamma release assay and a T-spot was what I would do in this setting. Okay. But if you told me you didn't have T-spot and you had quantiferon, I wouldn't lose any sleep about it. Yeah. And indeed, if you told me you didn't have any of them, you did a skin test, I wouldn't lose any sleep about it. Because the information you're going to get well. is going to be much better than... than um, than having no information, okay. just basing on, on, on other sort of profiling. Okay. Um, if, if then the person tests positive, you've got a choice. And I think it's important, you've always got choices in this situation. Um, and I think offering a patient a choice is very important in latent TB because you are dealing with a patient who's well. Yeah. Active TB to treat is really easy because the patient largely is unwell and very few people are so stupid or so deranged they want to stay unwell. Yeah. Um, so they'll take their treatment at least to the point of getting better. Yeah. But latent TB, you're well, and then you've got to take tablets, and people don't like doing that. Absolutely. So in that setting, I definitely want to give her treatment for latent TB, yeah. whether she wants to take pills or not. And we'd have that discussion that your risk is substantially elevated if you don't have therapy. Okay, yeah. Um, and I think also in that situation, you have to have an honest discussion that your treating physician starting biological therapy will probably not want to give you that drug. Yeah. Mm. But with biological therapy, not yeah. all biological therapies will have the same risk of reactivation. Okay. So one thing you could do, if, someone, if, if a patient says to you, look, Actually, I'm, I'm not interested. I don't want to take your latent TB treatment. Mm. Um, or you say, actually, you've got quite a high risk for adverse effects, and I can't treat you without triggering off liver dysfunction, mm, yeah. or I can't really treat you without triggering off a lot of drug and drug drug interactions. I'd go back to the treating physician and say, do you have another form of biological therapy? Okay. So it's easier now as the range of biologics mm. have, have have expanded for various of, of the uh, treating physicians to be able to say, you know, instead of giving anti-TNF, let's give an IL-17 blocker or an IL-12 blocker. Okay. So there, there are other options. Yeah. Okay, there's more flexibility now. That's yeah. interesting, isn't it? So it's not so black and white. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. So imagine that she, we imagine that it is positive. She has an IGRA, it comes back positive. And, you know, before she has your discussion with you, she goes back and does a lot of, lot of Googling. She's looking up herbal recipes and all the rest of it, finding out any, any other way. And what she wants to know is, is this positive result not just showing up a, an immune response you know, from a previous exposure rather than a, a dormant TB ready to rise up again? I mean, 
how do we how can we differentiate between those possible scenarios? Yeah, that's a that's a question that's that's vexed me for a long, long, long time. What happens to you when you get exposed to TB? Certainly not very well understood by me. It probably happens, as with most uh, initial infections, a lot of people are exposed to TB and they clear it, maybe just by the physical mechanisms in their, in their upper airways. Okay. A lot of people are exposed to TB and they'll be, um, uh, they will be protected by their innate immune response. So a lot of those, those cells that are poorly understood and diff- quite difficult to measure, you know, what your neutrophils doing in your airways, what are your natural killer cells mm. doing in those airways. Now, they shouldn't trigger a T-cell predominantly mediated response that you can detect either on a blood test or a skin test. Okay. So the presence of that sort of T-cell mediated Mm. response implies that you've actually, you know, inhaled it down into the airway, the model of the primary infection Mm. going down into the airway and causing a a reaction and generating an an immune response involving your, your lymph system. Yeah. So the, the, the skin test, on, a, on a, my simple understanding of the immune system, is as a biological meaning. Yeah. The other thing it does, and one of the, that's one of the huge strengths of the skin test, is it has been used for 113 years, I think, is it? Really? Now, yeah. 1907. Oh, first paper showing its effectiveness in children, 1909. Yeah. So there's data in hundreds of thousands of people to show it has a reality in terms of if you're skin test positive or skin test negative and you follow through these patients to see who developed active disease. So it yeah. does have a predictive quality and mm. that's been shown throughout. So I don't think when you're seeing a response, you're seeing a sort of someone who's been transiently infected, there's there's nothing there. Mm. That's really useful. I think that might help a lot you know, when you're actually explaining it to patients and explaining that to them and saying that this is a, this is a sign of a a dormant, I mean, latent TB might be difficult to understand, a, a dormant TB, something like that. Mm. And those sort of words might help them understand it and potentially be more willing to have treatment if we thought it was worthwhile. The only other thing to add to that is, of course, there, there are, especially with the, if, if you think about the skin test, because the, the skin test uses tuberculin, which is a huge conglomeration of antigens, which is not specific to tuberculosis, and in particular will still be in BCG. Yeah. So you might come back if you've had a skin test and say, well, I've had BCG. And then you have to have a discussion around cutoffs for the skin test. Okay. You can overcome those by using these interferon gamma release assays, which are stimulating a response to antigens that were lost when BCG was mm. developed. So that's why yeah. BCG is not so virulent, doesn't have these virulent antigens. Um, so you don't get that confounding with that. The other possible source of confounding is exposure to non-tuberculous mycobacteria, um, these sort of pesky environmental organisms. Yeah. But again, I think in clinical practice, that's not a huge concern and shouldn't really be a huge concern. Sorry, just to check that, that's for the skin test, not for the igloos yeah, so and T-spotter specific to mycobacterium? They, they're TB. all specific to mycobacterium. Yeah. The um, igras are not confounded by BCG, mm. they still can be positive with certain non-tuberculous mm. mycobacteria, yeah. Mycobacterium canzassii, Mycobacterium leprae, Mycobacterium okay. sulgi. I think in practice you wouldn't really worry about that too much, mm. because those are infections you see in very small niche populations. Brilliant. I, I think the other important point to say is how you can get caught out in that situation with, with someone like that, yeah. who doesn't want to take treatment. I, I've had a recent case where a young lady, very similar to your description, came to me 
been on anti-CNF therapy for quite a long time. I think I've been on infliximab and switching to adalimumab. And she had a juvenile arthritis. She kind of, you know, been through lots of treatments. She had very clear ideas about what she wanted to do and what she didn't want to do. And she'd had a previous negative IGRA. And then because they were switching for no other reason, they did it again and it was mm. a positive IGRA. Mm. And she came to see me and I had a long discussion with her. And so, well, that's a bit odd. You know, you've been on this anti-TNF before. You haven't developed active disease. That would seem like a good test of whether this is really important or not. But I said, you know, but the, 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 the test, I think, will be a true positive. False positives are very unusual with mm. interferon gamma release assay. And I think you have to really think very hard before you say you have a false positive. And she didn't want to take any extra treatment. And so I said, okay, I'll tell you what, why don't we start treatment, but you let me know if you're developing any symptoms. About six months later, I'd seen her with her active disease. So that was start treatment as far as... Sorry, uh, her anti-TNF. Yeah, yeah right, she didn't yeah. want to start latent yeah. treatment. And I accepted the risk to a certain extent. I was, I was sort of derailed by the fact that my um, instruction to her and her GP that let me know if she has any symptoms was translated by the GP into let me let me give you two or three courses of antibiotics yeah. and have you coughing for three months um, mm. before you come to see me, which which is a problem I need to address. Um, but the more interesting part of the story was that I then started her on treatment. She's now grown tuberculosis. She's grown tuberculosis that she almost undoubtedly got from her boyfriend, who I saw a few days later for screening and had yeah. a very abnormal chest x-ray. And he was coming back to the point of back occasions. He'd almost certainly had primary TB, and no one thought of TB because he was a nice white boy with a yeah. you know good job and things. And it turned out that his flatmate had probably had TB, um, and no one had screened him. And then because of that, now his girlfriend's got it. So you can see the trail of, of disaster in, in your way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it, and, and it illustrates, you know, supposedly I'm the TB guru, but it's easy to make these sort of small mistakes that are compounded yeah, along the way. Well, that's human, isn't it, as well, Warren? And I suppose it's, uh, as I say, they're all, it's always complications, and that's medicine for you as well. It's always these difficult decisions and complications which you have to try and work around and learn from. Oh, Barney, that's so true. You know, oh, you have a safety net, but there's always yeah. someone with a pair of scissors <laughs> just creating a small hole. <laughs> ah, you, you never get rid of them. We'll probably discuss investigating for active TB at a different time, mm. but I think it might be worth just pausing on whether or not we can predict, uh, we have any ways of predicting if someone has latent TB, whether or not they will progress to develop active TB? Do we have any way of, of sort of teasing that out? Thankfully, I can refer to some data here from okay. the UK-based PREDICT study, which was a study conducted predominantly in London. I think it recruited 10,500 people um, of, of high risk of going on to develop active disease. So they were either people in contact tracing clinics, so with known exposures to active cases, or new immigrants. Okay. And that's an important group I don't think I've touched on very much. Of the, one of the groups we're really looking to target. So it's well recognised that people who migrate from their home country are more likely to develop TB after migration than if they stayed in their home country. Oh, really? Interesting. Hmm. Um, and the reasons for that are yeah. probably multifactorial. I'm, 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 you can't see this, obviously, on the podcast, but I'm staring up at the sky, <laughs> which is... 
clear and sunny <laughs> and a reminder that from now onwards we can go out and get our vitamin D topped up and get Very a nice, nice tan, obviously with uh, careful skin protection as well. And vitamin D is thought to be important in protection right. against TB. Yeah. So it's thought mm. that various stressors, perhaps changing diet, changing vitamin D, also probably come to accommodation where you're more likely to be sort of living cheek by jowl and you might actually get exposed as well. It means yeah. that people who are emigrating from areas with high incidence mm. tuberculosis, which sort of defined in the new emigrants screening program as more than 150,000 cases per 100,000 population. Mm. I think there's about 30 odd, odd countries in the world like that. People from there, Actually, if you, you have a high risk of TB in the, in the subsequent five years or so, so if you identify those patients, those individuals, they're not patients, but yeah, yeah. Um, and offer those who are positive, that's one of the ways in which we will bring our rates of TB, TB yeah. down. With regards to vitamin D, anyone that tests positive for latent TB, would you check if they're vitamin D deficient and would you sort of give everyone vitamin D? Yeah, we would do standardly. I, I was always a bit sniffy about it, actually, um, because as an individual measure, just giving people vitamin D is not going to make a huge difference, mm. but it will make some difference. Mm. I have to say, I think in, in practice, I, I check people's vitamin D and replace it because my impression is it just makes people feel an awful lot better. Mm, yeah. And there's a lot of people with sort of non-specific aches and pains and just not feeling right who do really well once you boost their vitamin D. Um, all time to get out on the sun. And also, it's such an easy thing to do. Yeah. yeah. So, so p prediction, you can do it partly based on those things as we've discussed, you know, risk factors. Um, but can you use the test to predict? The evidence isn't great that any of the tests are better than, a, than another. Right. And this big study in London looked at skin tests with various cutoffs, um, interferon gamma release assays in the form of quantifieron gold and T-spot TB, and found there wasn't a big difference between the different tests. Mm, yeah. And that's, I think, that's the best prospective study to show that, and that fits with previous smaller studies and, and retrospective studies. They recommended that on a cost-effectiveness level, if we come back to that, mm -hmm. which is important, that probably a two-step strategy with a skin test followed by an interferon gamma release assay is pro is, it seems to be, according to that data, the, the best strategy. Okay, okay. A two-pronged... A two yeah. yeah, so you do the skin test, your initial yeah. sort of screening test, and then if someone is positive, about five millimetres, so that's a relatively low cut-off, do your interferon gamma release assay to try and eliminate the potential for false positives for the things we've said, environmental yeah. exposure yeah. and BCG. For everybody you test for latent TB, if it is positive, do you treat them? Is that how you would... Yeah, so I think for everyone who's tested positive for latent TB, the first thing you do is to make sure they don't have active yeah. disease, of mm -hmm. course. Yeah. And you will find a small proportion. It would be small, but you will find a small proportion of people. So you do a chest x-ray and you do symptom questionnaire. We tend to do bloods, but I have to say, I, I, I'm not mm. sure really what bloods tell you, hardly in all TB, to be honest with you. They're not a great marker. Mm. Um, and then in those people where you feel definitely don't have active TB, you have a discussion. Okay. We'll come on probably in more detail to adherence, but at the end of the day, adherence is all in this condition and yeah. in this treatment. So you, again, this is something where people don't just do it because you say to do it. 
when you break it down into the into the discussion, actually, it's quite a difficult sell to some people. Mm. I find it quite a difficult sell to myself, and I frequently yeah. ask myself, yeah. "Would I do this?" <laughs> you've got a kind. I'm telling you vaguely, you've got a five to ten percent mm. lifetime risk. It might be a bit more because you've come from another country, but I can't really tell you. But I can get rid of that risk. Well. How much can you get rid of it? Well, the trial data suggests between 25 to 90% efficacy. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, yeah. we're starting to sort of break it down. Mm. Um, and how long do I have to take it for? Oh, well, I can give you a three-month regimen or a four-month regimen or a six-month regimen. It doesn't sound all that appealing no. instinctively. No, sure. So I think you have to respect the fact that some people will quite reasonably say, look, you know what, I'm not too fussed about this. I'll yeah. take my mm. chances. And you say, okay, and you give them good advice about what the symptoms would be of, of active disease, good advice about who you ring, which would be the TV service, if you have any concerns. And I think make sure it's clearly documented on their records that, that you know if they do present with a mm. fever or a cough, yeah. that people recognise that TB is a substantial risk in that individual. Okay, okay, great. And so, yeah, again, having that safety net. I think that's also quite a good destructive sort of take home for the general medic, which is if you're seeing someone on the medical take who's presenting with a cough and they've had any kind of history of TB contact or maybe they've even been seen in your latent TB clinic, to not sort of ignore that and take that very seriously. Yeah. Um, because that could be a marker of active disease. Yeah. And to remember that, actually, when you're thinking about active TB, we come back to the point about you know, why do robbers rob banks? You go to the place where actually you might find some diagnostic information. And in pulmonary TB, it's very simple. A chest x-ray, yeah. which even in the kind of worst series, inverted commas, for, for pickup, picks up 85% of cases. And, and, and my opinion is actually it picks up a lot more if you're okay. really good at reading chest x-rays. Mm. With the one caveat that as we get lower and lower numbers, radiologists see fewer and fewer cases, and our experience is they then become very cautious about reporting it, partly because they haven't seen that many cases, but also interesting because they're worried about what would they do if they highlight someone might have TB, yeah, yeah. so they sort of try and ignore it. <laughs> sure. So well, always yeah. be slightly wary of that. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is to send off sputum, someone's coughing. You know, delayed diagnoses are often just because someone hasn't sent sputum and they haven't done a chest injury. Yeah. Does age play a role here? I, mean, I understand that yes. as you, you get older. New yeah. So I think getting back to the overall picture, I keep getting diverted yeah, by my yeah, own um, um, <laughs> Getting back to the overall picture, you put age in, in, into the mix, not as much as we used to, Barney, yeah. not by any means. You know, it used to be this below or above 35 was the, okay. again, that sort of cut off, which seemed very rigid. If you're 35 years and one month, we'd say, don't worry about it. If you're 34 <laughs> and 11 months, we'd say, have some treatment. Yeah, yeah right. Um, and that is based on on data with isomerism in particular, showing that you have an increased risk of adverse effects. And really by that, we mean hepatitis and hepatotoxicity. With the, the older you get. The older you okay. get. So the paediatricians will tell you, you can give isoniazid or you can give rifampicin, yeah. you can give anything, and the kids never have any problems. Right, yeah. A geriatrician will tell you, you can give isoniazid and you'll get lots of hepatotoxicity. That's, that's interesting because that's counterintuitive to me because I would have thought the older you get, the more important it is to treat latent TB because your immune system is probably going to be less capable of coping with active yeah. disease. I, I, yeah, because I've never heard that age cut off before. Right. Um, 
that that's that's a real generational thing, Jonathan. You're making, you're, <laughs> you're making me feel old. Wonder whether I should get any isonizer. It's the millennial, <laughs> the millennial view. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. It's a really important point yeah. that when we go back to that reservoir idea of latent cases in a, in a country like like the UK, one of the biggest populations, the highest prevalence of latent TB, will be an older population who were born in an era where there was masses of TB mm-hmm. yeah. and there was no treatment. Um, and one of the reasons why numbers have never fallen completely and probably never will fall completely or, or won't for a while is because there will always be that pool of patients mm-hmm. who, as they get older, they have cell-mediated immunity or wane and they develop active disease. Interesting in practice is a little point that I've picked up is you see older patients. My older probably means above the age of 65, something mm-hmm. like that. I don't think we see often cases where it's just because they've got so old mm. that their immunity has waned. I always see that as a as a reason to investigate further for an underlying cause of immunodeficiency. Mm, okay. One must remember that old people can still have undiagnosed HIV because yeah. believe it or not, they mm. still have sex. Mm. No, um, please. And we, <laughs> I recently diagnosed someone with HIV TB co-infection who was sixty seven. Yeah. Um, and okay. my colleagues will tell you you can get new diagnoses into the 80s yeah. I think looking for some form of malignant process is very important Yeah. Um, and sometimes the TB is obvious and the malignancy isn't obvious and they're a group often I will follow up a little bit longer just to be certain mm. Okay. Um, mm. so, but, so age is important in terms of activation risk um, but it does seem to be that the drugs are, have an increased risk of toxicity as you get older yeah. Having said that, you can give latent TB treatment to someone starting antistamine therapy, and the vast, vast, vast majority, you know, well over ninety percent, mm. I estimate, have no problems with toxicity at all. So okay. it's a relative concept. Okay, something to be aware of, but actually, isn't perhaps as much as we might have read. You know, about absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's why you'll see with the, if you went to the 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 nice guidelines from two thousand and five. I think they were first out in the UK, two thousand five or two thousand six. We still had this thirty five year old cut off yeah. point whereas now it's up to sort of 65 and increasingly yeah. age has become yeah. more and more irrelevant the only other thing to say about age is if you're, if you're talking about lifetime risk obviously if you're 20 your lifetime's probably mm. going to be a lot longer than if you're 80 yeah. so that again feeds into the into the figures great so um, back to our case so um, she finally agrees to take the treatment after a consultation and wants to discuss her options so Maybe we could start by saying, well, what are the options that we should be recommending to her or that we can offer her in terms of treatment of the latent TB? Yeah. So I am going to go back to the point. One option is to do nothing yeah. and observe, because I think that's important to have in, in your discussion and then have the, the the data and the idea about sort of relative risk, hard as that is to, 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 to sometimes to compute in one's own mind. Um in a setting like this, treatment discussion is easier because you've got a hard reason to want to treat. Um, and then you, and, and actually, before I say about specific drugs, I'll come back to the point about adherence mm. and having a hook to hang your treatment on that's really clear mm. that you want to have this drug, this is the best drug for you. And I can tell you, your treating doctors won't give you this drug unless you take my yeah. drugs, is really important. Um, because even if you don't get substantial side effects, most people feel a bit 
funny taking tablets. It's not really nice taking tablets. So the patient can think, look, I'm doing this for another reason. Yeah. Um, and then you have a, a range of options, and that range has increased. The, the longest standing option would be to give isonized as single agent. Until recently, the United States is a good example of a country where that would be the option. And they would give up to nine months of isolated therapy. The benefits of single drugs obviously reduces your pill burden. The benefit of isoniazid in, in a case like this would be often related to what other drugs is this individual on. Okay. And you have to remember that our best TB drug is rifampicin, but rifampicin has a lot of drug-drug interactions with mm. cytochrome P450. So someone who's on steroids or someone who's on another immunosuppressant drug or whatever it is that's interfered with cytochrome P450, you might elect to give isomizid. But you have to say you're electing it to give them a much longer treatment course. And the switch to the dual drug therapy, because that's something we're most aware of in the UK, and that's been what we've standardly used for many years, which is rifampicin and isoniazid, mm -hmm. which can be given as a nice combination therapy as refiner, yeah. which probably mm -hmm. you're all relatively familiar with. So that's treatment that you take for 12 weeks. No significant in increase in adverse effects with two drugs rather than one drug and equivalent efficacy um, in studies. Or you could give what seems to be increasingly popular, for good reason, rifampicin alone for four months. Okay. One thing I'm going to interject at this point is when we talk about months, I think in practice it's much easier to talk about weeks. Okay. For the yeah. simple reason being that the tablets don't come in calendar months. Yeah. Yeah. They come in lunar months, as you were. Okay. So one of the things you don't <laughs> want to be doing in TB treatment is endlessly writing scripts for someone who says, I haven't had three months, I need one extra week. Yeah. Because yeah. you can spend your life practically just chasing around writing yeah. scripts and then, <laughs> so there's helpful. no reason to do it <laughs> so 12 weeks is probably a better way of thinking okay. about them yeah, yeah that's good months. that's good um, rifampicin is according to relatively recent analysis probably the best tolerated of the drugs it's our best TB drug and it's probably our best sterilizing drug mm. um, and that's why you can you can give it for four months rather than six months um, we always worry about giving single agents in TB yeah. Um, there's very little evidence that giving a single agent in this setting, if you've excluded active disease, um, increases the risk that you might represent later later on okay. with, with drug-resistant disease. That's probably a reflection of the fact that if you really identified someone who does not have active disease, they therefore don't have actively metabolizing um drugs actively, sorry, yeah. bugs actively yeah. replicating extracellular organisms, so you can't apply selection pressure and generate resistance. So we've got isoniazid, rifampicin, or dual rifampicin and isoniazid? Yes. Is that, is that it? And that? No, and that, so they're, they're, they're sort of yeah. standard ones. They're all oral treatments. They're all self-administered on a daily basis. Yeah. So they're relatively easy to take, but it's a relatively easy. It's a relative concept, isn't it? It's sure. three months at the minimum. The... Potentially more exciting drug regimens are ones that try and either shorten the regimen or give it on a less frequent basis. I'll mention in passing rifampicin and pyrazinamide, yeah. which was a regimen that seemed very exciting, seemed to have very good activity and efficacy after only two months of therapy. 
um, was effective in HIV positive population, but had an excess of adverse events in okay. an HIV negative population. And for those people who've given pyrazinamide the standard TB treatment, that won't be a great surprise because pyrazinamide feels like, for want of a better term, a slightly dirtier drug than the others. Um, and then the other combination which is increasingly in vogue would be to give isoniazid and rifapentin, mm. which is another rifamycin uh, derivative, which can be given weekly. Yeah. And there's some good data to show that that's um, equivalent in efficacy to the other regimens. There are some dietary requirements in terms of taking it with, I think, with a protein meal. Okay. I've had some yeah. discussions about a trial where every patient had to have a egg McMuffin. Um, <laughs> other brands are available. I pointed out that I couldn't stand eggs, so therefore yeah. I, I just wouldn't be eligible for that trial. Um, but that's potentially quite an exciting regimen. Yeah. You might be able to give it directly observed fairly easily. It's just once a week. Mm. And for how many months? And, you... for, and for 12 weeks. 12 weeks, okay. Yeah. Isn't that the direction that the CDC have gone? Yeah. I, th I think Now, th this is something, Jonathan, where I um, don't necessarily share the views of the CDC or the programmatic concerns of the CDC in mm. terms of adherence. Um, but I think they have valid concerns about adherence because latent TB work is, is dogged by the fact that often estimates of ad true adherence to a regimen can be as low as 25%. Yeah. Um, and of course, you can talk about efficacy of your regimen as much as you like, but being efficacious, yeah. if you don't take it, yeah. then take it. There is some data to suggest actually you don't have to have complete adherence, and I mm. think that is an important point to make. People take the total number of doses, but in a not in quite as regular a yeah. way as possible, will still seem to get the same benefit. Yeah. And that's a reason sometimes to to just sort of accept that and just to plow on. Mm. Not too long, but to, you know, you can just if you get there in the end, you usually achieve your, your target. But I think quite rightly, they worry about adhe adherence. There's a worry about how much resource you have to put into to monitor whether that's directly observed therapy or video observed therapy. So, there's big advantages from that point of view if you just have to worry about adherence once a week mm. yeah. and you can watch them do it once a week and then you know it's done for the week rather than every day. Yeah, mm. so I think that's one Excellent. that's one of the reasons why the CDC is really. Because of adherence concerns. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's, you know, that's very reasonable. Yeah. I'm not aware of the patient-centred evidence of whether that's more acceptable to patients than that's once a week rather than once a day. Yeah. Um, and certainly, I slightly doubt the wisdom that sort of mandating someone to take it in a way that you've got to be watched increases adherence and some people, some people react quite badly to that yeah mm. sure and something which is as say intuitively once a week sounds sounds like it would be better but actually as you say people might be more likely to forget it be more likely or whatever yeah. might, or actually having to come to so this human human nature is always a yeah. bizarre one so everyone's different and you mentioned some of the side effects i think um maybe even most of them so liver function that's an that's an obvious mm. one any other side effects we should be looking out for in these patients if they came on medical take on that sort of on those drugs, what medics should be looking for or thinking about? Yeah, so liver dysfunction is definitely the most important one. Yeah, that's the one where really you can run into problems, and and there are reports of deaths periodically in liver transplantation, yeah. mm -hmm. and they're few and far between. Um, but that's because the majority of people follow the correct guidance, and we were talking about holes in the safety net. 
when you look at these cases, it's usually because the safety net has been slightly snipped somewhere, okay. mm. um, and the you know these things happen. They shouldn't happen. One of the reasons they shouldn't happen is because detecting liver dysfunction is rarely a, a, a something that needs a blood test. The blood test almost always will confirm mm. your clinical impression in someone who comes to you to say, "I'm feeling nauseous all the time," or "I've started vomiting." And I always sort of try and delineate between the nausea you might get when you take a medication and you wait half an hour to an hour before eating, which makes most people feel a bit icky, for want of a better word, for yeah. a couple of hours, to the, I'm just feeling like I'm nauseous and almost could be sick all day. That's, that's the sign that you're getting into problems. Okay. Mm. And that's quite unpredictable. We've talked about age, but actually the majority of reactions mm. are, are, are quite unpredictable. So liver dysfunction is the one thing you, you must never miss. Um, rifampicin anisinizid can give you a skin rash. I'd sort of estimate somewhere between 1 in 10 to even 1 in 5. Okay. Um, it's often just transient at the start of treatment. Sometimes it persists, and I think you have to take it seriously because, again, you come back to the point that the patient is taking a treatment, not because they're sick. And now you're actually making them feel sick. So I always take it very seriously. Antihistamine is often effective. Okay. Um, very occasionally you have to just draw a line under things and say, yeah, you're just reacting yeah. badly to this. Um, we avoid, or you will avoid peripheral neuropathy, which might be concerned with isoniazid, by giving some pyridoxine, small dose of vitamin B6. But most people will avoid it if they have it in their diet anyway. Okay. So mm. Fair number of people don't give pyridoxine at all unless someone is malnourished. Okay. Mm. Um, and then there are rarer reactions. I mean, it's quite rare to see things like rifampicin-induced fevers, rifampicin-induced hypersensitivity. You've got to be aware of them. And one of my golden rules is never dismiss a symptom. Never yes. dismiss a patient where you say, well, I've never seen that before. Sure. The patient started a drug and then they've got a symptom. Always assume it's the drug. Mm. If nothing else... If you take the patient seriously, I think they're probably going to trust you and carry on taking your treatment. If you dismiss them, I tell you what I'd do: I'd stop taking your treatment, and then the whole exercise yeah. is wasted. Absolutely right. So that's some good advice. Thank you. And what degree of hepatotoxicity do you, if any, do you to, do you tolerate in with someone, someone with iron age? Yeah. So so. Sorry if that's quite a general question. No, 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 no. You know, it's a really, really good question. So if you look at the guidelines, which I've always used, which are the BTS guidelines, they talk about um, five times the upper limit of normal of your transaminases. So in this hospital, we have an ALT, other places might have an AST, um, if you don't have any symptoms. And if you look very, very closely, you might see some transient rises and then falls. And then three times the upper limit of normal with symptoms. That, I think, holds really well for active disease and holds really well for active disease, one, because your incentive to treat is much, much greater. The patient's incentive to accept side effects is much, much greater. Mm. And also because just in the setting of active disease with a lot of inflammation, you might get transient rises. So it's good to sort of ride it out. With latent disease, I think it's a slightly different ball game. I would be a I would be much more uncomfortable to see someone, say, with symptoms and ALT of 
twice the amount of limit of normal yeah. latent disease. There's no hard and fast rule, mm. but I'd sort of see it in a, in a contextual situation. Yeah. I wouldn't want to have someone sitting there with an ALT of you know, six times the upper limit of yeah. normal at all, yeah. mm. and even five, I'd probably look to sort of stop it, and then maybe just reintroduce them one by one, try and identify the yeah. one is. I wouldn't say, let's stop it and forget it, because of course, if you've started treatment in the first place, you should have believed that that really is the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, great, yeah. But I'd err on the side of caution rather than kind of winging it with latent TB. Yeah, yeah. that's helpful. So um, let's say that our, our patient has completed treatment for latent TB and then let's say a decade or so passes and she's exposed, unfortunately, to a close contact with TB. Um, is there any point in rechecking her IGRA at this point if she's asymptomatic but has a contact who has active disease? So I would say no. And the reason I would say no for both an IGRA and a skin test is that you know that she has immunological memory mm. and you know that immunological memory does not yeah. completely fade away. Okay. It will wane, but, but it won't go. So I think having a negative skin test or a negative IGRA doesn't really tell you very much. It probably tells you just that the, the, the stuff's waned, but you could probably boost it up again. And having a positive test probably just tells you that she's been had TB in the past. Yeah. So it becomes quite a difficult question. It's interesting, the more we've gone through this conversation, the more I'm realising just how many components to latent TB there are. You know, you have this yeah. sort of underlying immunological um, component to it, but there's so much that is patient-based and based on their symptoms, but also based on sort of a, a longer view of the patient. It, it does seem like a bit of a dark art. I, uh, yeah, <laughs> not dark art, but uh, it's, compli it's complicated. Navigating these decisions yeah. isn't as straightforward as the IGRA is positive, give yeah. treatment for latent TB. I suppose that's what I'm trying to... Yes, it's, it's interesting that that worries me that basically I'm making into a dark art. <laughs> the the um, TB guru's dark art. Yeah, yeah, I love it. it. We're yeah. doing the opposite, aren't we? No, I don't. Yeah. But I think it does show that the degree of uncertainty that yeah. is... That's a good way of putting it. I'm not it, claiming at all I'm an expert in latent TB. There are people who who just think about this their entire life. <laughs> but I've seen a lot of cases, and I have thought about this, and I've heard, to a lot, heard a lot of wise people talk about this. And I've also talked to a lot of patients and just had yeah. those discussions about what do you want to do and seen the outcomes of that. And I come back to that point about adherence being so important and adherence being shown to be potentially so low mm. that I think I personally think that being able to discuss things and express that degree of uncertainty, yeah. but give your evidence of why you think that's a good strategy is, is important. So I, I never mind feeling like I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. And I think the, 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 the flip side of that would be if you're too sure, you probably just end up over, over treating mm. people. So if, you, so if you just take a kind of, I, I've got the positive result and it's latent TBI and give you treatment approach, You'll end up way, way, way over-treating people. And yeah. that definitely won't be cost-effective. You'll also find that you end up starting treatment on people who then go home and then just stop it. So that's where adherence comes in. Yeah. And you'll also find you'll start to see these people come back with side effects. And then you'll be sitting thinking, oh, do, I, do I press on? Do I persuade them to press on? That's quite difficult unless yeah. you're certain you're doing the right thing in the, yeah. in the first place.
So I think the key there is, you know, try and be as sure as you can be, as you can be, that actually you're doing the right thing. And if you're starting treatment, you're starting it with that sort of confidence that this is the right thing to do for this person. I think so. Which is difficult. And contextualise each individual person. Think about their, their mm. risks. Think about the individual. Think about the other drugs they're on. Mm. Try and make an in, 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 individual decision. Mm. And then the last thing, which does sound like a dark art, is just try and get the sense from the patient of what they instinctively want to do. Mm. And I'm a big believer in that, that people make good decisions in the instant. You present the options to them, and I often say to people, just close your eyes, and what do you think you want to do? And there are some people say, you found this, I know it's there, I'm not going to be comfortable until I know I've got rid of it, I'll take treatment. And you might say, I know, but you might have had this for 40 years, no, 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 I'm going to take treatment. Yeah. There are other people in whom you say, well, you know, you've probably been recently exposed, yeah. you're probably at relatively high risk, they say, that's fine, but actually I'm going to go to my herbs, I don't want to take treatment. Yeah. And that's fine, that's, that's the choice. And I think yeah. you've got to be comfortable with that choice, with the hopefully snip-free safety net, of the person who you don't start on treatment, you either follow them up yourself and do an x-ray and follow them up, or, as I tend to prefer, you make sure it's very clear what symptoms mm. to look out for and how to contact you. Brilliant. Um, thank you, Roland. Yeah. Yeah. What I just wanted to finish on, I suppose, is um, are, you, you know, are you savvy of any changes on the horizon for um, how we investigate or manage latent TB, which you're aware of, or are we is our current a current plan of you know, the people who we're testing and treating is going to stay the same? You know, Barney, I really hope it won't stay the same. Um, it has stayed the same. There have been tweaks, you know, we talked mm. about isoniazole rifepentin, for example. There have been tweaks. We've, we've had the introduction of interferon gamma release assays, which are, you know, great tests. But they haven't really moved things on very much. I'll come back to the PREDICT study, which suggested doing a skin test and an interferon gamma release yeah. assay. What we haven't got and what we really ideally would have would be a test at baseline which somehow can tell you, one, perhaps, whether they do have some rep actively replicating organisms, mm. so better at distinguishing truly between mm. latent and sort of subclinical TB. Also, some test that would allow you to say this person is at high risk of progression in the next one to mm. two years, as opposed to this person you could leave alone and just give some advice mm, yeah. to. So I think that baseline test is, is not there. The other thing which I don't find inhibits me that much in practice, but I, I, I think patients would really like, and programs would really like, would be a test to say, actually, you've had, you've had the treatment and you've mm. finished. I say that partly in relation to perhaps that question we just, you, you asked me earlier, Jonathan, about the person who comes back 10 years later mm. You know, if you knew they definitely had, had treated latent TB, and then 10 years later they come and you've got a test that says, oh, this is the, still the same for the mm. treatment latent TB, or this is new, that'd be incredible. Yeah. It? And it might transform our ability to, to proceed in more developing world settings where reinfection would be much common, more common than we'd see here. Mm. And it'd be very important in healthcare workers or people who are occupationally exposed. Yeah. Um, so I think those sort of tests, you know, they, they would they would really, you know, change the landscape for us. They really would. Mm. I don't think we're... There's a lot of work going on, but I don't think we're any closer now than we were sort of 10 or 15 years ago when really? I was spending yeah. every day thinking about yeah. these questions. Mm. 
with treatment, treatment shortening regimens are the, are the goal in active disease, let alone in latent disease. Yeah. So, you know, we, we're talking about treatments for coronavirus. We've still got the same old treatments for TB. And it's worth remembering, TB kills over a million people globally a year yeah. with 10 million new infections a year. So there's a pandemic of TB. It's been going on for yeah. decades yeah. and decades and decades. Yeah. Um, so treatment shortening regimens are really important. The only way we'll get there is with new drugs. And although there are new drugs coming on stream, I'm not aware of any that really look as though you'd get down to say, a week's course of treatment or yeah. a single dose of treatment. Yeah, which would be absolutely incredible and, as you say, a huge game-changer. Ronan, thank you so much for that fantastic tour of uh, latent TB. We quite like ending with maybe one or two take-home messages you'd like to sort of leave our listeners with on latent TB. Well, I'm going to come back to the, to the, the, the most important point in all TB, which I think is that you can be as clever as you are with treatment and clever you are with diagnosis, but at the end of the day, it's down to the patient taking the treatment. And then the other thing I think is people take things that they believe will work. Why do they believe they'll work? Because they've had them properly explained. It makes sense to them. They're not treated like a dummy. Mm. They're not treated like someone in a program. So I think taking a little bit of time explaining things to the patient recognizing that as doctors we're usually rubbish at doing that because yeah. we can't be bothered or we don't have the right skills so our tb nurses i mentioned once are the in your tb clinic the most crucial people mm. and so investing that little bit of time investing in your staff so they can support adherence and that's the only way we'll make treatment better lovely brilliant fantastic Very i think that's a great point to end on thank you so much yeah. thank you so You're much welcome, for your time. that's a really uh it's a really comprehensive look at Latent TB. Loads for us to mm. learn, loads for our audience to learn. I think it's going to be really, really helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons and Dr. Jonathan Hudson. Today we were joined by the fantastic Ronan Breen. Information on today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at journalspotting, Facebook, or Instagram. Special thanks goes to our logo lady, Natalia, and graphics man, Costa. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave us a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests, and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how you treat your patients or yourselves.